I think stay positive and keep working, keep chipping away at that, that block. Eventually that ice will melt and people will start to listen to you, but just keep working at it. And eventually somebody will take a chance on you. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. Hello, everyone. On this episode, we have an amazing guest. Her name is Alicia Warren, and she's the product design director at Rippling, as well as an adjunct instructor at Columbia College, Chicago as well as the city co-organizers at Ladies That UX. Her past experience include experience design lead at JPMorgan Chase, ex-product designer at CVS Health, as well as senior product designer at Allstate. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And then uh, especially on this episode, some of the things that you'll be learning from Alicia include how to get a job after being unemployed for a year. Love to hear that. And then... Mm -hmm. When you get a job, like before you even get a job, how to see if a company is a good match for you through using organizational design. And the third topic we'll talk about is UX-driven transformation. So I'm familiar with digital transformation. I'd love to hear what Alicia has to say about UX-driven transformation. All right. So let's start with maybe like, so tell us a little bit about your background and maybe how you end up being unemployed for a year, and then we that kind of segues into how to get a job after that. Yeah, I actually started out my career as an educator. So I was teaching English in Korea and Japan and wanted to make a bit of a pivot. So I ended up going across the world, like what's the opposite of Asia? London. So I, I ended up getting my master's in publishing studies at City University London. And while I was there, I, I realized that I was sticking more towards these more design-oriented parts of the course. So for example, if we had to pitch a new book and put together all of the sales numbers, how that book would do, the marketing campaign, etc., for that book, I largely took on the design part of that role, you know, drew the book, or I would do the marketing materials for the book, or I would design the website to help promote the book. So I really started to kind of find my passion for design, which was interesting considering I'm just coming out of my publishing master's. And I think it was 2010 or so when all of that had kind of wrapped up. And I'm applying to jobs left and right, anything, literally anything, editorial assistant to product analyst to just anything. I mean, I didn't really understand the market or what I was looking for. I just knew I had a bachelor's in political science and I had a master's in publishing studies, and I was hoping I could get some kind of job. And I just kept getting rejection letter after rejection letter. I'm, you know, living alone in London. My family didn't live there at the time and I'm having to pay student loan payments. So it's not looking so good, <laughs> but I, I kind of prodded my curriculum advisors and was looking for just anything I could get my hands on, whether that's internships that were unpaid or freelance work or just joining another course that would help me build my skill set. 
I did all of it. And my resume did start out very skinny and had basically just that education experience and the experience as an educator, but it started to build up. I started to learn XML. I started to work with different internship, uh, different internships, kind of helping them with app development. And it just so happened that a couple of those internships were with like healthier names. So Fight and Press working on their wallpaper app and the National Gallery Company, like very recognizable names in the industry, helped me kind of get my foot in the door, right? But it still wasn't enough to get a full-time position. I had to keep looking for those freelance opportunities and just keep building my resume. And I, I treated it like a job. Like I would start in the morning, read my rejection letters with my coffee, <laughs> uh, go for a run. I'd come back and send out a few more applications. And then, you know, after I'd done a certain amount in the evenings, I would do something a little bit more creative, like paint or draw or read a little bit to just help kind of fulfill that kind of, that part of my brain. And as I started to do this, I started to realize I was getting a little bit more than just a complete rejection letter. I was like, oh, let's have an initial conversation. And then the rejection came, (laughs) but it started to really fill out. You know, I started to get those interviews and eventually I did get my first job opportunity as a product project manager. But today we kind of look at it more as a product manager. Oh, congrats. And so it it sounds like when you said you treated the, this motion as a job where you had you know, kind of like this rote repetition of maybe reviewing the rejection letter and sending out more or, you know, applications. You treated the job search and, you know, the job process as a a process that things kind of came, came, you know, seemed to improve. Yeah, I think getting the feedback as well during that that process, just trying to understand where I was lacking, Mm -hmm. um, reworking and refining. It's just it's almost like a design process in and of itself, right? Because you're learning a little bit about the hiring manager, the organization, you're doing your discovery research, you're taking that and unpacking it and trying to figure out what's my solution to this hiring manager's problem. And you're presenting them with the resume and a portfolio that tries to figure out, okay, does that solve that problem? And then with that kind of motion, you can kind of piece together, okay, that worked, that didn't work. And how can I rework and refine for that next step out? What advice would you today give to, you know, that Alicia as she was, you know, <laughs> kind of struggling? What some, what are some tips knowing what you know now? I think stay positive and keep working, keep chipping away at that, that block. Eventually, that ice will melt and people will start to listen to you, but just keep working at it. And eventually somebody will take a chance on you. And I have to say, I probably took it a little bit for granted at the time, but really leaning into the network that the college and the universities had afforded me, I wouldn't have gotten to work with the National Gallery had uh, the City University of London not connected me with the people that worked there. And For those of you that are out there kind of in a similar boat and don't have those connections, maybe not working with the boot camp, just 
trying to figure it out on your own, utilizing those resources like ADP List or AIGA that kind of connect you with a mentor that can help open those doors for you so that that block of ice kind of melts away as well. I would plus one on the network. You know, when people ask how, you know, we work with such great companies, I say, you know, it's it's hilarious and, and embarrassing that I'm really a one-trick pony. I, I only work with companies that know me and know us. You know, we don't cold call strangers and, uh, you know, we don't get a lot of like totally cold inbound. A lot of it is referral, word of mouth and the network. So, you know, and I've had what, a 10 plus year company. So I've managed it pretty far with really this one trick of just the network. Mm. Yeah. So the network, and when I say network for, for people, even starting in their career, right? Like it could be people who you went to grade school with just checking in with them. If you have good friends or college, one of my friends, I think he's gotten pretty much every job and deal through his fraternity. Like they were really tight and uh, again, it's it's a network. So, you know, or your boot camp friends or, or colleagues, if you went to a boot camp and see if they somebody landed somewhere again, I think, you know, that's that's an underutilized uh, thing. So thanks. Thanks. Yeah, plus one to that. Next topic is like this was really interesting. Like how how do you reverse engineer to see if a company is a good match for you? And, you know, especially looking at the organizational design. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is something I didn't know nearly as much about when I was taking that first step out into my career either. I just thought, oh my gosh, anybody give me a job, please. (laughs) I need to pay rent. But something really interesting is to figure out what it is, like what, what is the team that you work best in and how would you flourish in your career? Do you need that support, for example, from other designers and want to have that mentorship to grow? Or do you do you prefer to be kind of working independently and to figure that out on your own? And, and knowing those things, you can kind of apply that to what you look for that next step in your career. So I might look at an organization and be able to just utilize some clues about it from either doing a bit of search on Glassdoor or LinkedIn, asking around to some people to really understand how the organization is structured. And then from there, I can understand how the design team is structured. And then from there, I can understand how mature is their design organization. And then kind of like, Full, full circle back to what I was just saying, then you can understand, okay, is this really the right fit for me? So let's let's take an example. I might look at something like a CVS Health or a large organization, and I can see just by way of public information that it has a lot of different organizations attached to it, right? CVS has Aetna, health insurance. It has CVS Health, this kind of pharmacy program. And then it has CVS, the actual pharmacy uh, brick and mortar stores. So just by knowing those three things alone, I can assume that their organization is a little bit distributed and their design teams are not one large design team. From there, it's maybe a little bit more research. You use something like Fishbowl or Glassdoor 
to kind of help you understand a little bit more about the teams and what they're supporting and then how that organization is structured. But if I'm looking at, I guess, again, our, our CVS health example, I might be able to see, okay, this one is a little bit more internally facing right? And so as I'm talking to the recruiter to understand a little bit more about the the role, I might say, all right, is it this part of the organization or this part of the organization? And I can start to piece together, okay, what does this look like? Sometimes it's not so obvious, right? Especially if you're looking at a startup, they, they may not have any of that information available. But even with a startup, we can look at the age of the company, We can look at the people that are already working there, right? Some of that information is widely available through LinkedIn. I can see, all right, we have Alicia who works at Rippling and she's had a design career of over 10 years and she's hopped around to different organizations. So even if that organization has not been around for very long, then maybe we can assume that their design maturity is a little bit more stable than say something with somebody who's just starting out in their career and that's the only designer there. So we use these clues just based off of what's out there to help us understand how far along in maturity is the organization, how far along in maturity is the design team um, and the design organization itself. And then we can figure out, okay, is this a good fit for me? Right. Yeah. It's very important, especially well, maybe before that, right? You said something interesting, right? When you didn't have a job, just give me any job, right? It's mm-hmm. that sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like when you have no job, any job will do. But I think once you have some experience under your belt and and you have some optionality and some choice, you know, you want to be, you know, maybe potentially a bit more thoughtful about your career. It's true. Like, yeah, sometimes when you join startups and, you know, it's, four engineers and they want to hire a mid or junior designer, you know, if you go into that, you're not going to get any design mentorship. You're not going to know, you're going to be learning on the job and you're sink or swim and you're going to be on your own without any design support. And that's what it's going to look like. That's what it implies anyways, versus, yeah, if, if it's a founding startup, but Alicia's on the team, you can say, oh, well, you know, she'll be my mentor and I'll work under her and learn, learn a lot that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I even think, you know, for you career switchers out there, right. How did you flourish when you were in those jobs? Um, If you're coming from maybe an architectural background, for example, with much more project management kind of focus, maybe you, you appreciate the structure and the templating that a larger, more mature organization can provide. But if you were like me, And when you were younger, you kind of played with everything and you just like to tinker around with a bunch of different things and sometimes played on your own, sometimes played with a bunch of other people. Maybe you like the independence of being able to figure it out on your own. And so maybe you're okay with being that, you know, UX team of one. It's really just kind of almost like a soul searching. (laughs) What do I really want? How do I work best? What makes me happy as a designer, as, as an individual? Yeah. Also understanding what the role looks like in company size. Like if you're at a smaller company, you might be wearing multiple design hats, whereas maybe at a big, bigger company, you'll probably be more specialized. Maybe, you know, a UX researcher, UX writer, UX 
designer or hyper-specialized roles at bigger companies, but maybe at a smaller company, well, for example, speaking of our own agency, you know, everybody is expected to kind of be able to do user interviews, do wireframes and, you know, talk to customers. And again, that's also, you know, soul searching, right? What, what do you want to do? If you just want to do that one thing, it's like somebody came, it's like, I just want to only interview people. I don't want to do any wire. Like, okay, maybe that's, this is not the organization for you, you know, or, Hey, I want to just get the breadth of experience and figure out what I like. Maybe, you know, a, a smaller agency might be a good fit. Yeah. Whether you're customer facing or in-house or back of the house, you know, some, some designers don't get to talk to customers, you know, some, some designers, that's all they do. So, you know, again, it's like a personality and fit. Yeah. And you can get some of those clues too, from that job spec, even just with the job title itself, right? Product designer as a job title, you might find that you're doing more full stack design, right? You're doing everything from discovery to delivery, could be a splash of marketing in there. It's really just what the product needs. Whereas perhaps for UX architect role, you might be a little bit more specialized. You might be doing research, but you may also not be doing research. It might be a little bit more specialized as you were talking about. So just kind of like looking for those clues in the in the job spec to help you along in that path. All right. So in terms of the next topic, like let, let's dive into, tell, tell me more about the UX driven transformation. Yeah. So we kind of think of organizations and if I'm really taking a step back, right? Like and just looking at the way that organizations are built and designed overall. There's this thing called service management. And back in the day when we had conveyor belts and we're building you know, things in the factory, service management told us that, okay, Alicia is going to do one part of this entire thing and she's going to get really good at it, right? So if we're building a car, I'm working on the door, and I'm, I've been doing it for so many years that I'm amazing at it. And I can really shave off the amount of time it takes me to build this door. And at some point, Toyota said, hey, maybe this isn't really the way, the best way of working. You know, you can only get efficient so much <laughs> before it starts to be like, I physically just can't get better at this. How can we make our teams still high efficiency, but also kind of make it fun to work in. And that's where this Kaizen methodology came to, to being. And what, what they did was they created these high trust, high collaboration environments where managers talk to managers and figure out, figured out, okay, what's a, what's a really good way to be a manager? Like, how can I support my teams better? And People who worked on doors would all talk to each other and be like, okay, what's the best way of making the door? And they would innovate in, in the way that the car was built in general. And sometimes I, I look at that framework and I see the way that enterprises are shifting today. And that feels very real to me because if we apply that same kind of methodology to even just a building a product where you're a UX designer... In the old way of doing it, you're, you're getting this piece from the business. The business says, hey, I want you to build the door. And you go out, you design the door, maybe do a bit of research, design, deliver that to the developers. 
and the developers build it and ship it out. And it is still very much this kind of conveyor belt that we're looking at, this like waterfall, waterfall. The, you know, kind of world that we're living in. But now we're we're mixing things up. We're coming up with ideas together and we're innovating. But I'd say not all organizations have gone down that path in, in, in entirety, right? And organizations, uh, more recent experience that I've been in at Chase in their chief technology office, UX was really the first part of that puzzle that came in and said, hey, maybe there's a different way of doing things. And part of that was because UX just didn't, we weren't there before. So we're kind of brand new to the team and us existing at all is going to shift processes. But what was happening was, hey, I have this, you know, this backlog of things that I need to do. And so people would just break this up and, um, you know, hand it down to the different team members, very project management focused and not getting, not sharing as many ideas with each other. And even just with our existence there in questioning, is this right? Is this the right thing to build? And are we building it right? Those two questions alone really started to shift the mindset of the people that we were working with. And as we started to question, the organization also started to realize, hey, we need help in this endeavor. And they brought in product transformation. People from the product school, we started to learn different methodologies and really started to shift what it meant to build product within that part of the organization. But it all kind of started with UX coming in for the first time and not having had that before just starting to ask those questions. It was really surprising to a lot of people that somebody would even question, you know, why are we building that? It's, it's not an offensive question. I, I am assuming that there's a good reason for it. I just am trying to figure out what's the story here? How did we get from point A to point B where we decided this is the thing that we actually need to build? Is there any other way we might think about it? And that really started to you know, open people's minds in a different way. And I'm not going to sit here and say it was super easy because there were a lot of conversations, You know, hey, at the end, we just got to the same solution. And we just spent two weeks <laughs> in meetings talking about it, but really understanding, you know, hey, I've, I've noted down every single possible solution. We've talked to our end users to say, is this solution going to solve the problem that you have? And we were then able to go in with a little bit more data as opposed to, hey, we just guessed that this is the right thing and the right way to move forward. And that really, like I said, it shifted people's minds. It shifted the way that product was built in that part of the organization. And it, it made those experiences, not just in building, uh, not just in the, the product itself and the delivery that we provided, you know, we made that more human, but we also made the interaction at work more human because we're listening to each other. It's not just I'm passing this off. I'm shoving a pizza under the door with my, <laughs> with my design and asking you to go build it. It's, you know, it's more of a conversation and we, we feel more confident about the, the output once we're there. Do you really shove pizza under the door with your designs <laughs> <laughs> to, to grease the wheels? <laughs> it's like, maybe I should be doing that. <laughs> I don't, 
I feel like in this day and age, putting pizza on the floor is a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like the analogy still holds, like maybe it's a DoorDash thing, but, you know, I kind of agree. So, Wills. Yeah, I I think, you know, asking questions, kind of kind of being being the the beginner's mind helps, like, because sometimes it's like in an organization, right? Just because things have been done this way, people just keep doing it that way, right? And they don't question. And there's, uh, I think sometimes that's why companies feel frustrated and they hire outside consultants because they don't have any assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. And everything is new and they just potentially bring in a fresh perspective. Definitely. Definitely. One of the fun things about being a consultant, right, is you get to ask why a lot and uh, you get paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And and sometimes, yes, you do come to the same conclusion or kind of arrive back at where you started because of constraints. But sometimes, you know, it, it does open doors to questioning or seeing new new ways of doing things. Curious, what does a design director at Rippling do and how big is the design team? Yeah, so the the full design team at Rippling has about 30 people at the moment, and we are divided into different pillars that service the employee experience from onboarding all the way to offboarding. So we have an HR team, we have a finance team, we have an IT team, which is the team that I lead, and growth team. And All of these kind of make up that full end-to-end experience for somebody being an employee. I think we've all been there in that situation where we've started a job and kind of used one tool and then had to go into another tool to look up insurance information or go into this other thing that didn't make sense. And if you haven't been in a job where you've done those things, maybe you did that at school where it was like, hey, log into the library for this and log into this thing to get your health insurance. So we see these kind of systems very disparate and Rippling pulls all of them together in a single unified experience. So kind of getting back to your question, my team specifically has four people at the moment and I've got four open positions. And what we're really trying to do is make that experience for our admin a more cohesive, unified experience so that we can still connect to things like HR data. So what I mean by that is IT admins, a lot of what they're doing is building the infrastructure and the backbone of an organization so that you can get your computer And you can work safely without the data of the organization being infiltrated. And we're we're figuring out ways to make that seamless. So back in the day, you might have met with an IT professional. They give you your computer. They give you a password. You set up a bunch of stuff. You've got to go through a bunch of different trainings. And now, because we're working in a hybrid environment, because technology has changed, because our expectations of how we work have changed so dramatically. The IT professional who is helping you with that is, in a way, they're kind of less a part of the picture, right? Because they can't be there in many cases to hand you your laptop. But in other cases, they're there to make that experience more human. And so I'm sure we've all been there where we've picked up the phone to either Apple or whatever, where a computer is broken and we're just asking for help. 
and getting some person, you know, and just having to wait on the phone for 20 minutes before somebody can pick up. And what we're trying to do with Rippling is make that much more seamless. So what my day-to-day looks like, I might be doing everything from interviewing customers to understand what's happening right now in their purview that makes their life difficult, either utilizing the platform or just in general, right? Because we want to solve problems, not just with the, the system that they've got, they've got now, but also the future and to make sure that we can support their needs in the future. I'm also doing a lot of interviews. Like I said, we've got four open positions on my team. So I'm reviewing portfolios, talking to people, trying to understand, you know, how do you solve problems? What's your process like? I might sit down and pair with my team members. So if I'm looking at something like a feature that we're diving into, and I just want to understand what our thought process is, we might actually do design work together. I'm not going to be there unless they want me to be, of course, but hey, have you ever thought about this problem in this particular fashion? So we might just mock something up in Figma and or do a little bit of competitive analysis to kind of think about things in a slightly different way. And then a lot of what I'm doing is also thinking about process and product consistency. So we, we're, we've got an upcoming design sprint where... The whole team is going to come into the same room and we're going to think about what does the future of Rippling look like? And we're going to start unpacking that in different ways and asking each other the hard questions that we need to move forward. So there's a lot of collaboration. It's going to move very quickly. And I think that's been a very different life for me coming from an enterprise where I did see things, you know, want to move more quickly, but maybe held back a little bit by either process or, you know, even to just meet federal regulations, we've got to have this and this check in place. So it may not even be something that the organization wants, but they're required to by law. And that's just something that you, you know, you deal with when you're in that kind of an organization. But now we can kind of peel things back. We can kind of push the envelope in a slightly different way. I'm not looking at just Chase anymore. I'm looking at what is all of IT in the world. And I think that's been quite eye-opening to look at things from that perspective. It's like, hey, I don't have just a slice of the pie. I have this view into it, and it's much more of a, a view into the pie. Yeah, you're you're stepping back and trying to design for for multiple organizations and fulfilling their needs at once. Yeah, I guess maybe to backtrack, I should have asked this probably before, and maybe we'll we'll just put this in front. What is Rippling? For people <laughs> yeah, who don't that's a good know. question. So Rippling is an all-in-one HR platform, and what what we do is is almost like a data management platform in a way. But we bring all of those disparate HR systems into one place. So we automate a lot of that process as well. Meaning if you start a job and have signed all the paperwork, have done your background check, your machine is automatically shipped to you with all of the, you know, the admin access provided. If you need that, you've got the right applications already preloaded onto your machine. You've got all of these kind of security aspects preloaded onto your machine as well. And that way, when you get there, it's not really about you trying to figure out IT or 
you trying to figure out how do I access my my insurance card or me, how do I figure out how to get paid? Right. It's all there in one place so that you can focus on the problems that matter. Yeah. And focus on the work. Yeah. Instead of kind of like the craft of being an employee. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, very cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, Alicia, thank you so much. You know, this is, we're coming up on the hour. So I want to be respectful of your time and really learned a lot about, you know, this, your journey, especially coming from a non-traditional design background you know, from the publishing world and political science and, uh, and transitioning into design. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I hope that even if it's just one little tidbit that somebody walked away with something helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I almost went into political science. I, I took some sort of entrance exam in Thailand. Uh, I did horrible and definitely I did not, was not a good fit to be a political science major. <laughs> it's a changing industry. I think that, you know, you're seeing a lot fewer people go into it unless you want to go into law. Yeah. For many people in other countries, I think political science is, is, you know, an avenue for, for advancement, you know, kind of, there may be travel, there may be, you know, travel abroad, that type of stuff, you know, political policy, stuff like that, that could be interesting to some folks, but, but yeah, with, it's definitely changing. I don't know, you know, (laughs) well, especially in our circles, I don't know that many people there. For sure. For sure. But the nice thing is that you can always pivot no matter yes. what you decide. <laughs> yes, yes. And and a lot of folks on, on this podcast do not come from design backgrounds. Actually, you know, in a future podcast, we're going to interview someone who was a designer and is now not doing design. So how to transition out of design into, you know, kind of next role will be an interesting topic. So how do people get in touch with you? Yeah, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm also passively on Twitter. So <laughs> M-I-K-A underscore J-O, Mika Joe. And uh, yeah, otherwise I'm always on ADP list as well. If you want to schedule some time with me there, I help people out on or talk to people on Friday mornings typically. But if you don't find anything in those calendar or you're not on ADP list, just feel free to shoot me a message through LinkedIn. I'm happy to have a conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one. <laughs>